0: Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles. Open up with me to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 17. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I do want to give you a heads up to uh, stick around after our last song uh, during the offering. I know some people may sneak out during that last song, uh, but we do have Gil Jacobs, the chairman of our Board of Elders, that would like to share an update on our senior pastor's search. So we would just encourage you to stick around after the service. Uh, We're continuing our series through Revelation 2 and 3, studying the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, These are the churches that Jesus originally sent these letters to, and he is essentially doing a spiritual checkup. He's given them an MRI, and X-ray, and he's evaluating where they are spiritually, and he's bringing to light some spiritual diseases that exist within these churches. And it's our hope at FAC that we would look to these seven churches... And ask the question, do we resemble any of the symptoms of these spiritual diseases? And if we do, what must be done? How do we take up the remedy that Jesus offers to each of these churches? And so today, we'll look at verses 12 through 17 as we look to the church of Pergamum. This is what it says. I'll read it and pray, and we'll begin. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp-edged two-edged sword i know where you dwell where satan's throne is Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you are capable of miracles. We have seen you in your outstretched, miraculous hand do amazing things. There, have, there has been testimony in your word of you uh, halting rivers, of conquering death, of doing all such miracles. And so we ask, Father, this morning for a miracle, the miracle of a transformed heart. Would you, Lord, move your spirit in this place now so that we can miraculously understand your word and change from it. I pray, Father, that as we look to your word, that you would give clarity and conviction. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. This past year, in the spring, uh, winter, spring, my family and I had the wonderful opportunity to visit, uh, take a vacation to Disney World. If you've ever been there, you know how ridiculous the crowds can get. Right, you You wait sixty minutes for a sixty second ride but your kids think it's like the best thing in the entire world, and so you convince yourself that it was worth the wait and that it's okay. Um, They have these things called fast passes, right, that you can get that allow you to cut everybody else in line. Um, I have learned to smooth talk the employees at the fast pass line, and that helps a little bit with that wait. Um, In the Magic Kingdom, they have fireworks every night, And it's a nice ending to the day. So even though sometimes the the park is still open afterwards, normal families usually leave right after the fireworks. My family is not a normal family. If if I have paid that much money to the mouse, you better believe that I'm going to be in that park Every last second, they're going to have to drag me out of there, right? And so on one particular evening, as the fireworks were going off uh, and my family was watching, we decided after the fireworks that we want to uh, hit up a couple more rides before before we head back to our hotel. But if you're familiar with the Magic Kingdom, you will know that there's one road that leads up to the castle, and everybody kind of stands in this area in front of the castle in the road. They call it Main Street, and then after the fireworks, Fireworks, all 50,000 people that are watching these fireworks are exiting the park. And so here's my family and I on this one occasion. We've got the double stroller going, and we want to go to the rides all the way to behind the castle, and we are trying to navigate and push and shove and maybe throw punches to get through this crowd. Right? We were bumping up against people. Uh, they were really frustrated with us. They were really... Impatient with us. Some of them were even intimidated by us. At one point, there was a guy that's, that said, Man, that I overheard him talking. He said, That dad's got a double wide. In reference to the stroller, he said, You don't mess with a dad with a double wide. <laughs> and I'm like, You're right, you don't. You better let me through, right? And, and we're pushing and we're shoving as we're trying. We were the proverbial fish swimming upstream, right? as we navigated this crowd. For the Christian, this is just a silly illustration of what it looks like to navigate a world and a culture that is just dominated by non-believers. It's a picture of a path. And on this path, you've got one group of people, the believers, who are walking toward Jesus. And then you have the other much larger group of people that are walking away from Jesus. And as you try and navigate this path of life, you're going to bump into people. You are going to come up against opposition. As long as Christians live among non-Christians, there is always going to be this clash between these two communities. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and those who have not will always be at odds with each other because they're on the same path of life, walking in two separate directions because they have different values. There's biblical, godly values, and then there are worldly values. And Scripture tells us that these values are not just different as if we could come to a compromise, but these values are diametrically opposed to each other. These values that we carry are mutually exclusive because one set of values seeks to glorify God in all things while the other set of values seeks to glorify the self in all things. In the case of the church in Pergamum, You could not in this context say that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is Lord, which is what the Romans were trying to get the Christians to confess. With this life, there may be a temptation for us as a believer to just give up trudging through the path that is always coming up against us, against the world, and just go along with everyone else. We may be tempted to compromise, you know, to make your life a little bit easier when it comes to your relationships with your friends and your family and and your coworkers. You might sit there and say, I just, I don't want to be different. I just want to be like anyone else, like everyone else. Is that so much of a problem? But I, that I sit here and I'm just i I'm just so beaten and so torn down by the rest of the world, by the people that make fun of me, by the people that persecute me for this, by the, by the people that, that give other people other opportunities? Is this so wrong to just want to be like everybody else? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are what we would call positionally sanctified which means you have been set apart from the world and made citizens of heaven. I want you to rejoice in the fact that if you're a believer in Jesus, God reached down and grabbed you and said, this one is mine. This one is, is mine. And so once again, if you are a believer, you are different. You're always going to be different. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it comes with the blessings of eternal union with God. And while we get to enjoy that in the next life and in this life, we do still live in a world that is ravaged by the ungodly. And there may be a temptation. I recognize the the temptation is very real to succumb and stoop to the level of worldly values. But for Jesus, this is not acceptable. And he writes a warning against spiritual compromise to the church in Pergamum. So let's go ahead and take a look at this together. Let's start in verse 12. Verse 12, this verse sets the tone for the rest of the letter. As we read that these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword. In that time, the governor of the Roman uh, provinces would be given what they call the right of the sword. It basically means that if the the Roman governor saw it fit, he had the power and the authority to execute at will. He could serve as judge, jury, and executioner, right? And so, in this image, Jesus you, that Jesus uses, he alludes to himself as a as a judge. And he's coming as a judge with a powerful authority over life and death. And he is coming to make a judgment, to to make a ruling, and to carry out the proper judgment if necessary. In, In this moment, Jesus is evaluating the spiritual condition of the church of Pergamum, and he is prepared to declare a verdict. He is prepared to do what's necessary to get them back on track. It shows us that this message to Pergamum is strongly negative, right? Of all the seven uh, letters to the churches, this is one of the more, if not the most, harsh letters in Revelation. And the reason for such harshness is because the church in Pergamum is not in a very great state spiritually, And the reason they're not in a great state spiritually is largely attributed to the cultural influence that has surrounded them. In verse 13, we see that they dwell, they live where Satan's throne is. It gives us a picture that there is really a lot of evil going on in the city. There is just like a spiritual gloom in Pergamum. Have you ever been there before? Well, you go into a, a geographical location, and it just feels oppressive. This was Pergamum. We get a sense that it, the city is just riddled with spiritual warfare. And the reason for this, and what's beginning to sound like a broken record in our series, is due to the, the imperial cult. The worship of Roman emperors as Lord. We've made mention of it the last uh, several weeks, the last two weeks, because it did have influence on the church of Ephesus and on the church in Smyrna. But, But Pergamum was the epicenter of the imperial cult. You see, the imperial cult, was like an earthquake that was felt for miles in Asia Minor, and it had influence over the whole region. But this earthquake that was the imperial cult, its epicenter, it originated in Asia Minor in Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of the the area. It was the religious hub. It was the first city of Asia to receive permission to build a temple in honor of a living Roman emperor. The imperial cult was central in Pergamum. While all seven churches in Revelation were affected by the imperial cult, Pergamum was most predisposed to its influence and so when the text says that Pergamum houses the the throne of Satan, it could be pointing to a number of different temples or pagan altars that were in the city, but it most likely is just a symbolic way of referring to the imperial cult. And so this sets up a clash right? between the church of Pergamum and the culture in which they live in. To to the believers in Pergamum, the throne of God was coming face to face with the throne of Satan. This was a just dead-on, drag-em-out fight. This was a showdown practically in their life. Now, we know that the throne of Satan has nothing on the throne of God. Well, we can speak to that. Hindsight is 2020. It's the purpose of why Revelation w- was, was written to kind of peel back the curtain and show believers that we win in the end, that there's nothing that you can go through that, that isn't worth it because we win. This is the purpose of Revelation. The throne of God uh, is over all things, right? And, and we also know that it's not some ongoing cosmic struggle between God and Satan, as if Satan is putting up a fight, as if Satan can can hold his own against god No. if you were to turn to revelation 20 you would see what the end battle is going to look like a lot of people when they think about the end times they think it's going to be this huge massive war between the forces of evil and the forces of good and they're just going to duke it out forever no what happens in revelation 20 is all of the 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 evil forces of the world are kind of gathered into one spot and then god in a moment rains down consuming fire on them it's not going to be a fight Satan isn't going to put up a fight however in the meantime he's not going to go down without kicking and screaming he he is going to do whatever he can and evil forces are going to do whatever they can to wreak as much havoc as they can while they still can right so you have this church in Pergamum who's experiencing that fight who's in the middle of this clashing up against their culture in a major way because they live where the throne of Satan is. It's it's where the devil is largely at work through the culture around them. And he is using that culture that surrounds them to draw them away from biblical values, from godly values. He is using that culture around them that surrounds them to directly contradict biblical values. And so the church in Pergamum have a choice to make. They, They can either stick to their biblical values and potentially sacrifice their lives and their livelihoods. That was the church in Smyrna. That's what they did. We looked at that last week. They can do that at the risk of their lives and livelihoods, or they can just go along with the Romans, even though they don't really mean it or believe what they did, and not suffer the repercussions. We've got one man in here that uh, that didn't sacrifice his biblical values. In verse 13, we see a man named Antipas who was martyred because he clung to the biblical values instead of giving in to the imperial cult. Unfortunately from our text, though, it seems as though the Romans made an example out of Antipas which would drive some of the church to compromise their beliefs. And this is what Jesus has against the church of Pergamum. We see it in verses 14 and 15. We're told that they have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 14 as a reference to two specific men named Balaam and Balak who are actually characters from the Old Testament. It's not characters in their context. He's pointing back to to the old stories of Israel. If you want to read more on your own, and I would encourage you to do this uh, for your homework, uh, you can find the story of Balaam and Balak in Numbers chapters 22 through 25, and then a little bit in chapter 31. It's Numbers 22 through 25 and a little bit of 31. It's a very bizarre story. At one point, there's a talking donkey, right? You're going to have to just go read it for yourself. Um, But I want to explain, for our purposes right now, I'm just going to summarize what is going on in those chapters. At this point in history, Israel has been wandering the desert for 40 years after they've they've come out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. They've just overtaken two kings in the area and have put them to death. And then they settled in what they call the plains of Moab. Balak was the king of Moab, And he sees the Israelites coming into his territory, and he actually is fearful of them. He hears about what's happening to to the people that cross paths with these Israelites. He, He has heard about these two kings who have been put to death for coming up against Israel, and so he is a little scared. And so he comes up with a plan. He goes out and he hires a pagan prophet named Balaam, And he pays him to call down curses on Israel. And Balaam agrees. He says, yeah, I'll do that. But when he goes to prophesy against Israel, we're told he does it three times. And all three times, he is overcome by the Spirit of God. And instead of prophesying curses, he ends up prophesying blessings on Israel. And Balak's plan falls flat on its face. And so he has no idea what he's going to do because it doesn't seem like this prophet is doing anything. And Balaam might have been a little scared. And so Balaam offers up a solution we find out later in Numbers 31 to Balak. And this is what he tells to King Balak. He says, send over the Moabite women into the Israelite camp. Send them over to seduce the Israelites, to bring them back in, And have them participate in pagan worship. Have them participate in our festivities. Have them participate in our pagan feasts and our food that's sacrificed to to, to our idols. Have them eat that food. Have them participate in sexual immorality with with our women. Because it's this mindset of, of, if you can't beat them, just join them. And the Israelites fell right into the trap. They embraced the culture in which they lived and participated in these pagan rituals at the cost of their sole devotion to the Lord. It actually says that they performed treacherous acts against the Lord, and as a result, 24,000 Israelites died because of their disobedient act that started with compromise, that started with spiritual compromise. And so in our text, when Jesus refers to Balaam, He is associating these people within the church of Pergamum to a person who led Israel away from biblical values and embraced cultural values. One commentator says this, he says, Balaam became a prototype for all corrupt teachers who betrayed believers into fatal compromise with worldly ideologies. Jesus views Balaam as a terrible influence leading God's people astray into immorality and idolatry. And so what he's saying here is you have a people in your midst that are influencing you away, that are pulling you away from my standard of holiness. And then Jesus goes on to explain the group that is doing the influencing. he's, He's talking about a specific group called the Nicolaitans. This group is in their context. He's comparing the Nicolaitans to Balaam and Balak. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but what we can gather is that they were probably a group of high-status believers, those from within, who believed that a certain amount of compromise with Rome was justifiable. They were cozying up to Rome. They weren't willing to come up against Rome and sacrifice their lives and their livelihoods. You see, in their mind, they're thinking, what's the big deal with just going along with the cultural trend if it benefits me. If I can gain social acceptance and I can avoid economic disaster just by uttering the words, Caesar is Lord, or just by participating in this idol worship, what is the harm in that? You see, the Nicolaitans would say, I don't really believe Caesar is Lord, And when I participate in their pagan activity, it doesn't really mean anything to me. No, I'm I'm just doing this so that the Romans will look at me favorably. There's nothing wrong with cozying up to Rome a bit. I'm just doing this so that I can get ahead in life a little and provide a little bit more for my family. Is there anything wrong with that? It's not hurting anybody. So what's the big deal? See, it is a big deal. If you read later on in Revelation, you would come to find that the world's values are pictured as a prostitute while the church is pictured as a pure bride. And the believers that are a part of this pure bride who yoke themselves to culture In a way that the Nicolaitans did, the ones who compromise with the world just to avoid suffering and maybe achieve success is guilty of committing spiritual adultery with the prostitute of the world. God is saying, you are called to be faithful to me. Yet you are cheating on me with another. And even worse, you don't seem to see how serious your rebellion is. You are writing off and downplaying your sin. The illustration is clear. We get an instant that we we are like, it's like we're, we're married. And then constantly cheating on our spouse, and then when you get caught, you simply respond, "Well, I didn't, I didn't have feelings for the other person. There were no feelings wrapped in. So what's the big, what's the big deal?" I said, like, "Well, that, that, that kiss, that was just one time. It didn't mean anything. So, so why are you freaking out?" Or perhaps you say, the, the, "Those those things that I watch online, it's not hurting anybody. So what's?" The big deal. It doesn't really matter, right? If nobody's getting hurt. In compromise, the Nicolaitans downplayed their involvement in secular activity and asked, What's the big deal? What's the big deal? The big deal is that Jesus hates what they're doing. We actually read that in the letter to Ephesus. Jesus told Ephesus uh, that, that I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, and I hate that they're influencing others to do the same. I hate that you are teaching people that it is okay to accommodate the world at the expense of total devotion to God and his standards. That's the thing about compromise, and really the first mark of compromise, if we were to walk through a couple of marks of compromise, the first mark is that it always lowers God's standards. The first mark of compromise is that it always seeks, its pure motivation is to bring down God's holiness and the holiness that he would have for us. That's the first mark of compromise. It's always lowering standards. Another mark of compromise that we need to see, and that the Nicolaitans probably experience and the believers in Pergamum experience, is that it never comes quickly. It is always just one tiny, no-big-deal, small decision at a time. Nobody who is in a happy, satisfying, God-honoring marriage wakes up one day and just decides, I don't want to be married anymore. It is a constant compromise. It is just the little lies that they're buying into that lead them to a point where they decide they don't want to be married anymore. To get to that point, there has to be some compromise along the way, whether it's visible or not. It never comes quickly. It always starts with something small that you give in on. A third mark of compromise is that it often comes in disguise. It often comes in disguise, and this can prove to be very difficult in our context because it seems that the lines between worldly values and godly values have been blurred, right? There are believers out there that have taken up worldly values and have embraced them and have tried to convince the rest of us that these are from God, that this is of God, that this is in God's word. It always comes in disguise. We may not be confronted with emperor worship or have to deal with literal idols in our context, but we certainly battle against idol worship, whether you realize it or not. Let me name a few. I believe that we worship the idol of sports. And I'll confess to you that I'm probably the biggest offender in this room. We build giant temples in its honor, and we shout chants of praise to the athletes that represent this idol, this god of sports. We worship the idol of social media and the internet. We strive for the likes and the ads, the friend requests, and the followers. We absolutely bathe in the gossip of the Internet and the gossip of the world around us. This last example I'm probably going to get in trouble for. But I believe, especially in the last few decades, that we have created and worship the idol of politics and patriotism our allegiance to America or a specific politician seems to be much stronger than our allegiance to King Jesus. In our country, I have seen people let politics paint their understanding of Scripture on both the left and the right. What do we call that when we let people paint their understanding of Scripture with, with politics, with their political party? What do we call that? Spiritual compromise. We overlook the wrongdoing of a political party. We compromise so that we don't make our candidate look bad, especially coming up in an election year. You need to let your understanding of Scripture paint your politics, not the other way around. You need to let God's Word influence how you view this country and how you view politicians and how you view uh, just the election in general. Do not let politics paint your understanding of Scripture. We as Christians... Because we are set apart from the world and everything man-made, do not fit neatly into the man-made bipartisan structure of America. And so it's a word of warning to us. Now, I'm not saying that you can't participate in such things. I want you to be able to engage uh, in sports, and I want you to be able to engage in the Internet and social media. I want you to please be informed about politics and what's going on in our country. Please go out and vote. However, there is a point where these idols will have your heart, and if they have your heart, that means Jesus doesn't. And they will only have your heart by compromising one thing after another. It's a long road, but boy, when you get to the end of that road, it is hard to recover from. It is hard to come back from after you have compromised over and over and over again. I want you to be able to um, enjoy those things engage in those things, but, but you have to not embrace some of those things. In order to avoid this, we must keep an arm's distance from uh, f- from the world as not to be engulfed both individu- individually and corporately. And this is where we experience some tension as a body of believers, because there needs to be a degree of separation from the world. That's that's sanctification. That's to be set apart. We need to be at arm's length, but we still need to properly function in a non-believing world. The Nicolaitans were unable to do this, and we need to properly function in a non-believing world. Not necessarily because we're forced to, but because God has asked us to, right? If we were so scared of becoming like the Nicolaitans, we could, in theory as a church, determine that complete separation from the world is necessary, and we could start our own community within a community. This is actually what the Amish people have done. They have determined that the world is so evil that we need to completely separate our community from the community of the rest of the world to the best uh, 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 of our ability. It's possible for us to do that if we just want to avoid the world altogether. But that's not what God has called us to do. What has God called us to do? Go into the world and proclaim the gospel. That's Mark 16. Go into the world and proclaim the gospel. That's what God has asked us to do, is to be in the world, to be among non-believers, to be a faithful witness. What he's saying is, while you're in their midst, remain in my midst. And so we get this weird paradigm where we are called to engage and disengage with the world simultaneously. We are called to distinguish between appropriate interaction and uh, compromise with culture. We are called to engage and disengage all at the same time. And if we don't capture this balance, we will not be effective in our mission. We will not be effective in our evangelism. If we completely disengage, if we go to that side of the pendulum, we will lose the opportunity, all opportunity to be a witness. But if we swing the pendulum to the other side and completely immerse ourselves in culture and completely engage, we will also lose our witness. This is what the commentator Craig Keener says about this. He writes that too much of Western Christianity has become indistinguishable from our culture. Too much of our evangelistic effort is geared toward persuading the world that we are acceptable because we are just like them. If we affirm what the world affirms, or more often live as the world does, to what then do we invite them in conversion that differs from what they already experience? In a sense, we forfeit our role in mission in evangelism when we value what the world values instead of valuing what the kingdom of God values. John MacArthur has said that a church that is just like the world has nothing to offer the world. And so I believe that as FAC embraces the lost world, yet can. Uh, refuses to compromise the biblical values of the kingdom of God, it will create a draw and a lure that will draw people from the lost world in. As we engage and as we disengage, they will look on and see that there is something different about that group of people. I'm convinced that they will finally come to grips with the fact that the world has nothing to offer. And as the broken world looks to FAC, they will see that we are merely a mirror reflecting Jesus who summons them into his kingdom. They will look on and they will say, they have something different. And we will say, you're right. His name is Jesus. We point to him. We point to him, Jesus, who gives hope and a promise. That's verse 17. He promises two things for those who conquer, for those who follow him. Uh, the, the first is hidden manna, and the second is a white stone um, engraved with a name that nobody knows except the recipient of it. Commentators can't seem to agree what this white stone is, and so we're just going to leave that there. But the hidden manna. It's very clear that it's a reference to the Old Testament which alludes to the manna that God provided in the desert as Israel was wandering. It's a promise which points to a much more satisfying and longer, eternal-lasting relationship. Jesus is pretty much saying, why feast with the idols that will leave you empty when you can receive manna? from me that satisfies forever why find fulfillment in the world that will leave you empty when you can find full satisfaction in Jesus why live a life of spiritual compromise which will only help you for a fleeting moment when you can receive ultimate fulfillment in Christ which will last for eternity and so I have a question for you today as you sit here are you hungry in this life? Because I know a source that you can feast on that will never leave you hungry again. And he's called the bread of life. His name is Jesus. And perhaps as you woke up this morning and walked through these doors and sat in your seat, perhaps you've realized for the very first time that you are walking on a path with the rest of the world. And you've just now realized that you're walking the wrong way. And you've just now realized that you hear that Jesus is calling out to you in this moment. If this morning, Jesus is calling out to you in this moment, do not ignore his voice. Turn around and follow him. And you too will enjoy the banquet that awaits us at the end of the road. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that you have a feast waiting for us. Lord, uh, there will be temptation in this life to compromise with our culture, with the world around us, There's a temptation because there is a little bit of satisfaction there, Lord. We recognize in our sin that there is satisfaction when we go along with the rest of the world. And so, Father, would you please show us that while there is satisfaction, it's fleeting and it leads to death and demise. Would you open our eyes up to Christ in all of his glory? Thank you for the bread of life that is Jesus. I pray, Father, that it would be a mission of our church to go into a lost world and engage with them so that we might point people to Jesus. I pray that that would be our heart's desire. I pray, Father, that you would provide the resources that are necessary to make Jesus' name known. I lift up our offering to you, Lord. We recognize that, um, that these donations and these contributions and these offerings are used to make Christ known, and we pray that to that end you would multiply it, Father. We, we praise you that we can worship you in this way, Lord, and we just lift it up to you that you would bless it. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.